Take your Bible, turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to do some focusing the next uh, six weeks or so, six or eight weeks. And I'll tell you on what in a second. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word together. God, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for Christ and His example. More than that, for His death and His resurrection that we could celebrate, we do really praise Your name. You are the Most High God, and there is no one like You. Thank You for that truth that our hearts are reminded of. Please help us as we study Your Word together, that it would challenge us and encourage us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think we all know that focus is important, that being focused is important. Um, I don't know, I know we don't have a big like football congregation here, but um, yesterday afternoon, the, or yesterday evening, the Ravens and the Titans played each other. Anybody watch that game? Okay, this will help me a little bit. Thanks, Michelle. Um, and uh, one of the teams was heavily favored. It was actually, a, they were a 10-point favorite I heard a uh, sports radio show this past week where one of the key commentators basically didn't give the other team a chance. And the, the, the Tennessee Titans have no chance in this game. But, but it was kind of interesting to watch the game because the Titans were the very last seed, the last team to get into the playoffs. And they've basically been playing for their lives for about a month. They've been playing games that they have to win in order to get in the playoffs. And they've been hyper-focused. And the other team had had a very successful season and had been able to kind of dial it down and turn it off for a few weeks and kind of cruise into the playoffs. And man, in the first quarter of the game, you could tell that the Titans were like just focused and the Ravens were like, oh yeah, we're back to playing football. And before they knew it, they were down two touchdowns. And this is like within the first quarter. And, and one was a long drive by the Titans, and then the Titans got a turnover, and they picked up the ball about midfield, and on the very first play, the quarterback throws a long touchdown, and all of a sudden you look up, and the team that was supposed to win by 10 is down by 14. And, they, and from that point, it was almost like they never had a chance. Be, because one of the teams came in just like dialed in, <laughs> and the other one was just kind of like, oh, here we go, and they got hit in the mouth, and it was over. You see this at your job. You see this even within families, that, that your focus matters. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. If your eye is full of light, if you are seeing clearly, then your whole body is full of light. And if your vision, if your eye is dark, your whole body is full of darkness. So, so focus matters and we told you at our family meeting that there were three core values we wanted to focus on this year. And I'll be honest, it's easy to hear those things in December. And by like June or July, you're like, what were those again? And it's impossible to focus on everything, isn't it? When we joke, we have 12 core values. It's impossible to focus on 12 things. But we can take two or three. We say, God, would you help us in those areas this year? Would you help us as a church to grow in those ways? Would you help our family? Would you help me personally? Would you, would you give us focus on some things? The pastor that I worked with in Indiana, who I have great respect for, used to take one new topic personally and learn about it every year. Because there's something new, focus. And you know what happens? God changes and he develops you. 
And so we have three core values that we want to focus on this year, and here they are. I almost asked you, but I didn't want to do that to you. December 8th was a long time ago. Fervent prayer, evident faith, and eternally minded stewardship. So we're going to take a couple weeks on each of those topics. At the end of January, we're going to sprinkle in a week or two just on the study of God's word. Because really at the heart of who we're praying Gospel Hope Church will be, that we will be, is that our lives will be built around the word and prayer. Those two foundations as we follow Christ. The word and prayer, the word and prayer, the word and prayer. And so we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to spend a little bit on the word, but that's not one of our key core values for this year. Then faith and eternally minded stewardship. And we're actually going to do it by looking at some Old Testament characters. So maybe you've wanted to learn a little bit more about the first half of the Bible. Maybe you're very familiar with it. But I think as we look at James 5, there's one that just kind of hits us in the face to look at. And then if you think about evident faith, you might even be able to guess whose life we'll look at for a couple weeks. Who does the Bible hold up as a model of faith if you think about the book of Romans? Um, And then uh, eternally minded stewardship, I'll I'll save that one and let you know. Uh, But our core value goes like this. We believe that Jesus Christ teaches and models a pattern of fervent prayer. Just as the early church devoted itself to prayer, and by the way, just read the book of Acts, it did. So we commit to being a congregation devoted to prayer. We affirm by word and practice the necessity of prayer, believing the promise that God, uh, of God that such praying has great power as it is working. Fervent prayer will be a part of our lives individually and corporately as we gather in small groups and assemble for the purpose of worship each Lord's Day. And I can tell you, I was encouraged this morning we had a pretty full room back there, 8.45, and praying together, and, and I was even brainstorming with someone some ideas for kiddos during that window of time that might even be a help for more of you to be involved in that concentrated time of prayer. This week, we had a focus on prayer with Gospel Grace, and that was encouraging. We had about, I don't know, 25 to 35 people from church each of those two nights up there, and, and a great time praying on Wednesday night and Sunday night. I was still coming back from Colorado, but many of you were part of that. The, the hope is not that we leave prayer in January. Man, that was a good week. And then you wake up in July and go, oh, am I still praying? We want prayer to be just an ongoing part, and not just any kind of prayer, but fervent prayer, earnest prayer, intentional, hard, prayer with effort is the idea. James chapter 5. Familiar verses, look at verse 16. Therefore, the Bible says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, hint, hint, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, It did not rain on the earth. Can we just stop right there? What did he pray? That it wouldn't rain. And what happened? It didn't rain. How many of you have seen a time that you prayed for God to work in nature and he did? Has anybody seen that? Like, I've seen that. We had some sort of event planned and the weatherman was like, you're going to get poured on. And we're like, that's going to be a disaster. And so we prayed. And it didn't rain. 
Now, I know I haven't prayed that it wouldn't rain in Utah for, you know, there's a reason that Elijah prayed that. We'll talk about that. But, but prayer actually works. And we're prone to think maybe it'll work or it probably doesn't work. But I'll do it anyway. I like how the uh, New Living Translation translate this verse, translates these verses. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. We're going to look at that today. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then he prayed again. The sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So let's look at this man named Elijah and as it relates to prayer. Go back to 1 Kings. This is uh, page 298 in uh, the chair Bibles, if you grabbed one from there. 1 Kings, because some of you may be a little more familiar. Those of you who have apps are cheating. You don't even have to know the order. You can just, there's the book. I'm just kidding. You're not cheating. It's good. When I was a kiddo, we had like all these songs that we memorized. And, you know, I'll spare you any of that right now, but... Then we had sword drills. Anybody do sword drills? Like, how fast can you turn? The people with the tabs, they were cheating. Um, it's actually something we're working on with our kids is just learning your way through your Bible. And so all of the Bible is inspired, by the way, not just from Jesus on. Right? The Old Testament teaches us valuable things about God and about humanity, and, it, and it's all the time pointing to Jesus and, and, and referencing him. 1 Kings introduces us to this man named Elijah. And the first thing that we see is that Elijah was living in a similar time to the times we live in. So I want you to do this. You can either do this by yourself or you can do it with the person sitting next to you. I want you to just kind of see God's summary of the times that Elijah was living in. So Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. That was an office, a group of people that God used in the Old Testament before Jesus came to speak his truth, to, to truth to power, kind of, truth to kings, truth to his people, right? It's not an office that is ongoing today, even though some people believe it is. But the Old Testament prophets God used in a great way, and Elijah was one of those, and his primary relationship was with kings, which would have been nice and easy if the kings were in a good place. If you want an illustration of this, you can go back to our kids' classroom, fourth to sixth grade, and uh, go in that last classroom on the right and pop in. And there are a list of all these kings that were kings over the nation of Israel and of Judah. And um, they have color-coded them on that back classroom. Good kings and bad kings. And so you can look and see how much green there is, which are the bad kings on the board, and how little red there is. But just for yourself, do this by yourself or with someone sitting next to you. Read through God's summary of how it was going in Elijah's country with his leaders from chapter 15 to chapter 16. And if you want to start with Nadab and go all the way down to Omri, just read those couple verses in there, and then we'll save Ahab to look at together. So what'd you notice? How's it going? Not real good. Evil. There's a lot of sin. What else is there? Okay. There's treachery, there's assassinations. By the way, did you notice these kings all offset against another king? Who, who are they offset against, like, who are they compared to or related to? Asa. 
So the, the kingdom of the Jewish people is split in half, right? A southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, is the one we're looking at. The southern kingdom, Judah, is ruled by a man who actually, for the most part, is following God faithfully. And he's just reigning and reigning and reigning and reigning. And where Elijah lives, it's just all coming apart. Right? Anything else you notice in there? Does the, the direction of leaders affect followers? Yeah. Is that something that's just isolated to Israel, by the way? Does that happen here? So, so the crowning jewel of this story of disaster is Ahab. Look at chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, Asa's just trucking along, following God. King of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri came to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 awful years. I put that in there. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He was the baddest of the bad. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam is like the bad example, the grandpa, 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 the patriarch that a lot of these guys are related to. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal. He, in, in the house that he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah, he made an idol. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, these are really, really, really bad times. And Ahab is like the crowning jewel of that. He, he marries someone God wouldn't want him to marry. He adopts her gods. He builds structures to worship those gods. He, he pulls people away. Like, it's really bad. It's divided, the kingdom is. It's self-destructive. It's dysfunctional in every way. It's a bad, bad, bad time. And it's exactly what God had warned his people about in 1 Samuel 8. This is what a king will do for you. That's why we famously say absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. And so there's a nation in chaos. It's divided and declining. This is kind of the map of how the split looked. Even if you look at chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, it's subdivided. It can't even agree on a king in the place it's divided. It's led by kings who are godless bent on serving other gods. You say, I don't really know who Baal is. Can I give you a little context? I like what one commentator has said about him. Baal was another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshiped. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? If we just follow Baal, he'll make our crops prosper and we'll be protected and everything will be good for us. Hmm. So that made me think, we ever felt this way about the nation we live in? A place divided, growing more and more godless, self-destructive, and you kind of go, what is going on? 
Have you thought about some of the leaders we've had in the last 50 years? I mean, names have come to my mind, but I'll let you. Are they men of character? Men who love God? Men who are trying to steer our nation to following God more faithfully? Or are they chasing other idols? Are they men at all that lack moral character? Is it any wonder that we're in decline? But it's not actually just limited to our leaders and our nation. The breakdown actually goes a lot deeper, doesn't it? The division and self-destruction and temptation to follow things other than God goes down a lot deeper than that, doesn't it? It's part of the reason Danny reminded us this morning that we're really all beggars because things are broken because of sin. They're damaged. They're, they're, they struggle. And what does James 5 tell us Elijah was doing when things were really bad? He was what? Praying. He, he wasn't um, uh, vilifying on Facebook. He wasn't picking fights and taking his side and saying, Guess who's right? I'm right. He was praying. And by the way, do you know what that prayer for the rain to stop was really about? It was actually a desperate prayer for God to get the attention of his people however he had to. Have you ever been at that place? Where people you loved and cared about, the city you were a part of, the home you were in, you were like, God, please just help us. Get our attention however you can. That's Elijah, a man in similar times to us. But you know what James 5 tells us that's so reassuring? He was a man made up of the same stuff as us. Go to 1 Kings 19. We're going to study this story in a little bit of a weird way. We started in 16, we're in 19, and then we'll come back to 17 and 18 next week. And Elijah's story is really encapsulated in these four chapters, 1 Kings 16 through 19. And really, chapters 17 and 18 are stories of how God powerfully works through prayer. And you would think at the end of it that Elijah would be like, God is amazing, I'm in his care, all is well, no matter how messed up the world looks, it's all good because I serve the God of heaven. But look at verse 1. Ahab, evil king, told Jezebel his evil wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. We'll talk about that next week. It was a moment where God displayed himself to be God and false gods to be idols. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That's very simply a death threat. Then Elijah was what? Confident in the Lord. Reassured through prayer. Strengthened by the Spirit. He was what? Afraid. And he arose and did what? Ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there and kept on running. 
He himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. What is Elijah at? He's hopelessly, to some degree, we would even use the word in our day, suicidal. Like, I just want this to be over. Take away my life, he says. It is enough, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And God tells him to arise and eat. And then in verse 9, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said this, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I did the right thing for you. For the people of Israel, they did the wrong thing. Have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Where's Elijah at? He's discouraged. He's depressed. He's afraid. He feels like he's in trouble. He felt like he had done everything right that he could, and his problems were the result of other people, and he felt alone and a failure. I'm the only one left trying to do what's right. You know, we can look up and down our streets and feel alone. We can try to follow God faithfully and feel discouraged. We can feel afraid. We can feel in trouble. We can even feel so discouraged that we just want it all to end. And that's why James tells us, you're made of the same stuff that Elijah's made of. Your home is made up of the same things that his community and his nation was made up of. I love how God comforts Elijah at the end of these verses. Look at verse 15. Elijah basically says this same thing a couple times. God asks him again in verse 13, what are you doing? Elijah answers him again. And look at what God does in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go return your way on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Jehu shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, your successor. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know what God says to Elijah? He says, there's more work for you to do. Here's the next way I want you to serve me. He says, I'm in control of everything. This is what's going to happen. And he says, you're actually not alone. So why is that important? Here's what we think. The times we live in are worse than they've ever been. Actually not. They're bad. They're hard. They're filled with trouble and problems. But we can think they're, they're too bad, there's no hope. We can also think, I'm a mess. My life is a mess. I, I feel things that make me feel like I shouldn't come before God. I have no right to ask him for anything. I, I, I despair. And you know what James 5 is telling us? Exactly. So we should pray. Like when we see the trouble all around us, we shouldn't go fight other battles to try to fix it. We should actually pray. When we sense the fear in our own hearts and the despair and, and the lack of trust in God, that shouldn't make us go, I can't pray. It should actually compel us to pray. When we turn on the news and we're distraught by what we see and we're distraught by the leaders that sit in place, I mean, it, it humors me to no end 
that Congress wants to be on its high horse impeaching the president. Do you know the most um, lowly thought of organization in our government? Congress. Have you seen their approval rating? There's just not a good mechanism to impeach them all. I mean, when we look at this thing, it's just like, I want something on the ballot that says, vote them all out. Check. But when I get all worked up in that, you know what it ought to do? It ought to make me go, I need to pray. When I look around at my family and it's all out of sorts, I mean, we're dealing with this adjustment to out of work and pastoring to just being a full-time pastor, and I'm at home a lot more. And that's good and bad. My wife has to adjust to that. She's kind of been like a military wife a little bit sometimes, and now she's like, you're home a lot. You have a lot of opinions about things. (laughs) Didn't God call me to be the keeper at home, you know? When, when we're frustrated and, and, and we're, we're, we're just distraught at our situation, we ought to pray. When we sense our own weakness, we ought to pray. This is the, the soil out of which earnest prayer comes. So don't ignore the pain or the problems, and don't ignore your own failings. They're actually the things that ought to take us to our knees. They're the things that ought to make us go, God, be merciful to me because that's all I got. Well, I feel all alone. You're right, we are small in number. But God is not small. And you are never alone, by the way. No matter how alone you feel, you are actually never alone. Because there's a God in heaven and his work is ongoing, and he has a place for you and a place for me in the middle of the mess and in the middle of our own weakness. Elijah was a man with the same nature you have. But the hope is never in us. It's in a God who can do powerfully things none of us are capable to do. So let's keep on praying and let's let the bad stuff around us and in us drive us back there again and again and again and again. So we should pray. Lord, we confess that even in this moment, it is good for us, our hearts to be drawn to pray, but it will be hard when we get home to pray. We will be tired in the morning. We'll be distracted at lunch. We'll be tired again in the evening. But God, we need your help to be people who fervently pray, who pray for our own hearts, our own souls. They are desperately in need of you, who pray for our families. God, who pray for our communities, who pray for our nation, It is dysfunctional. It is declining. It is morally bankrupt. Will you please intervene? God, what what could you do in our day like you did in Elijah's to show yourself publicly as the one true God to get us away from these other gods, to get us away from the bales of our day?
God, we need you. Gospel Hope Church needs you. Riverton, Harriman, South Jordan, West Jordan, Daybreak, Saratoga Springs, Lehigh. Please show us mercy. And would it start with us on our knees begging you, not just once, but as many times as it takes for you to work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.